I'd invite you to take your Bible this morning, turn with me as we have been uh, the last several weeks, and we'll continue for the next several weeks. We'll look together at the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're in the 15th chapter, Matthew chapter 15. Our text in just a moment will begin at verse 10. It is, uh, again, good and fun to be back in the pulpit this morning. Although I feel like the three weeks I was gone, I left those three kind of softball texts, and I should have been gone one more week. Um, or in some ways, I, I think this may be our most difficult text uh, that we will encounter together in the Gospel of Matthew. So buckle up today. But I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we look together at Matthew 15, beginning at verse 10. Jesus called the crowd and said to them, listen and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that contaminates a person in God's sight. It's what comes out of the mouth that contaminates the person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what you just said? And Jesus replied, well, every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be pulled up. So leave the Pharisees alone. They are blind people who are guides to blind people. But if a blind person leads another blind person, they will both fall into a ditch. And Peter spoke up. What? Explain this riddle to us. And Jesus said, don't you understand yet? Don't you know that everything that goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what goes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And that's what contaminates a person in God's sight. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual sins, thefts, false testimonies, and insults. These contaminate a person in God's sight, but eating without washing hands doesn't contaminate in God's sight. From there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from those territories came out and shouted, Show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. But he didn't respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, Send her away. She keeps shouting after us. Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, it's not good to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then, her daughter was healed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So um, these days, uh, when a lot of our kind of movie and television watching is online and we have the ability to sort of start and stop and pause things, um, filmmakers and television makers have gotten good at what, um, if you, you can search this on the internet, what are called Easter eggs. So as they tell stories, uh, filmmakers especially, but sometimes television makers will drop little hints in or little Easter eggs in the background of a show Sometimes just for fun. Um, so one of the most famous kind of Easter egg moments is uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas are really good friends. And sometimes they will drop Easter eggs from the other's movie in their movie. Um, so most famously, uh, when Steven Spielberg made E.T., um, Elliot, the main character, his room is full of Star Wars figures. And at one point when they're trick-or-treating, there's a Yoda that kind of walks through the screen. Um, Kind of most interestingly, when Steven Spielberg made Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's a scene, you can pause it, there's a scene where 
Indiana Jones discovers the ark for the first time, and it's in this kind of Egyptian tomb with all these hieroglyphics. And if you pause it and look really carefully at the pole, in the hieroglyphics, there is C-3PO and R2-D2 in the hieroglyphics of the Egyptian uh, wall. And George Lucas returned the favor um, by when he kind of made episodes four through six, I guess, of the Star Wars saga. Um, He ended up putting uh, E.T.'s family. (laughs) There's a scene where the Senate is gathered and all these aliens and representatives from all over the galaxy are there. And if you look really closely, you can see one delegation that looks like E.T.'s family in the background, right? But more often than not, Easter eggs are not just there to kind of play with your friends, but they're there to push the plot forward. And if we're paying attention, the filmmaker or television maker is trying to give us hints as to where this story is going. Um, So a couple of filmmakers who are kind of known for doing this, um, Martin Scorsese um, in his film The Departed, which is, I'm not recommending, a very violent film, almost everybody dies, very happy film for a Friday night date or whatever. But, um, But in the film, if you're watching carefully, All these characters who end up dying, at some point in the film, they're on screen with an X in the film. Uh, For one, it's in a pattern of carpet. For another, it's graffiti on a wall. But Scorsese's trying to tell you that person's going to die. Francis Ford Coppola does the same thing in the Godfather trilogy. Um, In the Godfather, anytime oranges show up on the screen, somebody is going to die. Don Corleone goes shopping through the market and he's shopping for oranges and people try to kill him. Um, Sonny, when he is killed, he's driving along the the turnpike and the camera just pans for just a second to a billboard that's advertising oranges and then he's killed. Um, Fredo, before he gets the famous kiss of death, um, he's holding a drink with an orange slice in it. And then most famously, When the godfather dies, he's playing with his grandchild and he's peeling an orange and he turns it into teeth and he puts it in his mouth. And if you know the story, you're shouting at the screen, don't put that in your mouth. You're going to die, right? So um, they're Easter eggs. Hints if we're paying attention to where the story is going. Why is that important? Matthew, as we have looked at, is telling a particular story about Jesus. He's telling a story about Jesus as what we've called a recapitulation of Israel's history. He's retelling Israel's story through the life of Jesus. So again, uh, several weeks ago, we looked at how in the genealogy, this is a story about Jesus who's connected to Abraham and the covenant of Abraham and the leadership of David and the end of the exile. In Matthew's telling of Jesus' story, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus have to start in Egypt and come out of Egypt, pass through waters, end up on a mountain where he gives a new law. Again, you don't have to be a great scholar to read Matthew and go, oh, I get this. He is retelling Israel's story through the life of Jesus. But here's the question. How does Israel's story, as Jesus retells it, how does that story end? What's the end of that story? What is the goal? What is the outcome of that story going to be? And this morning in this strange text, what we get is a kind of Easter egg of somebody who understands where this story is going better than anybody else in the story knows it. Now, Matthew does this several times, and I've lost a few of you, but this is actually really good. Hang with me. Matthew does this several times. He does it early on when we have the story that we know really well, a a ruler who's trying to kill babies, and, and all of a sudden in the midst of that story, 
outsiders called magi come. And in the midst of all of this sort of upheaval, these outsiders, these magi, seem to understand this one who is born is the unique messianic king. And like Sheba gave to Solomon, they bring to him gold and spices and myrrh. A little later on in the eighth chapter, People are beginning to wonder, who is this Jesus? And all of a sudden, a centurion, an outsider, becomes this one who comes and seems to understand the authority of Jesus better than anybody else in the story. And Jesus is overwhelmed by the fact that the centurion gets it. Towards the end, Jesus is now dead on the cross. And the rest of the folks in the story look on and say, we thought that he was the Messiah. If he had been the Messiah, God certainly should have saved him. And a Roman soldier will stand at the foot of the cross and say this, surely this was God's son. And so all throughout the text, Matthew is dropping these little Easter eggs. And you, almost every time there are outsiders who seem to understand where this story is going better than the people who are in the story understand it. And so what we have here is Pharisees angry, surprise. And the text kind of jumped into the middle of the story. So let me back up a little bit. The Pharisees come, hear that Jesus is hanging out in the north, but they're really upset. And they're really upset because they have heard and they have witnessed that as people take care of Jesus and the disciples along the journey, they give them food. And he and the disciples don't wash their hands. Ooh. Now, this is especially problematic in a pandemic to preach about. Please wash your hands regularly and don't touch me. Um, it is not so much a hygiene issue for the Pharisees that they're thinking, that's kind of gross not to wash your hands before you eat. It's actually a ceremonial device by which we would... Pharisees and others would ritually wash themselves, not just for hygiene, but for a way of marking themselves out in gratitude and in holiness as God's people before they partake in that which God has given us. Much, it's much closer to, to those of us who practice regularly prayer, even in public settings before we eat. Um, so some of you, uh, when you eat in public, um, my grandfather would do this from time to time. He would pray a little long and a little loud for our comfort. We'd be in a restaurant and, and we would mark ourselves off in the middle of this public place by bowing our heads. And my grandfather would pray a little loud so everybody kind of heard and the waitress is standing there with the plates ready to kind of go, how long is it? How many things are we going to be thankful for today? Um, but it was more, less an act of hygiene as a way of marking themselves off. And so the Pharisees are saying, listen, this is what it means to be holy. We participate in Torah and law in order to mark our life so that God will recognize that we have separated ourselves out for the sake of God and will bless us. So if you're with me this morning, I am convinced that the Pharisees primarily understand their life through Ezra, the Old Testament figure of Ezra. When the people of God came out of bondage in Babylon... They get to Jerusalem as rubble, and Nehemiah comes and says, I can help rebuild the infrastructure. But Ezra says, listen, here's how we got to exile in the first place. We forgot law. 
And so we've got to get it back together. And so the Old Testament, largely as we have it today, begin to come together in this time. And they read it. And Ezra gets them to love it. And as they hear it, they weep. They realize how far they are from God's law. And the Pharisees believe, if we will devote ourselves to this, then God will care for us. And if we obey law, God will bless us. If we disobey God's law, God will curse us. And so they look at Jesus and say, you're messing things up. Because here's how the story ends. We do God's stuff, and God then will bless us and redeem us out of the mess that we're in right now. The disciples are much more Samson-ish, if you will. The daily office, the daily lectionary, um, I, I read each day, the Old Testament texts are in the book of Judges right now, which is just so PG-13. Like, it's just an awful book. Um, so many wars and violence and tent pegs through people, people's foreheads. It's beautiful stuff. Scorsese would love that. Um, but just the last couple of days has been the story of Samson. And if you remember the story, he has cool hair. But, but the whole point is that Every once in a while, the Spirit of God comes on Samson, and Samson can then just go destroy the Philistines, right? So the judges are these people for whom the Spirit of God comes uniquely on them, and they are able to do these mighty things to deliver us from our enemies. So that the disciples, the problem is, they understand Jesus, and Matthew has narrated it this way, is this person for whom the power of the Spirit is uniquely upon him. At his baptism, the Spirit says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And when the Spirit comes upon Jesus, amazing things happen. He feeds 5,000, he touches, and people are healed. And so they're thinking, yeah, woohoo, we are connected to this one in whom the Spirit of God is powerfully upon and now will deliver us and we will follow him as he builds his kingdom, delivers us from all of our enemies. Yay! Right, you're with me. To which Jesus then responds like a typical prophet. For Jesus understands himself in the light of Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jeremiah. And so he'll say to these Pharisees who who think the end of the story is about being holy enough so that God delivers us and not everybody else. He'll say to them, listen, you're focused on things that aren't bad. It's not bad to try to not be corrupted or to set oneself apart. But the problem is you're so focused on what goes in your mouth that you haven't paid any attention to what's come out of your mouth. And you're not made holy because of what went in your mouth. This is what the prophets say. I, I don't care about your festivals. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. I'm sick of your prayers. Care for the widow and the orphan. You have decided to focus on this narrow, holy law-keeping, and you have forgotten that it's the very language, the words, the way that you view the other that is corrupting you. To me, if you're still with me, the challenge of the text is this. Jesus says, bless their hearts. You know that when you say that, you can say whatever you want to after that, right? Oh, bless their hearts. They're just blind. And I will say this. I, I, I hope that I have, I'm sure that there has been enough Pharisee in me in my life too, but I feel like growing up in the church, I've, I've known an awful lot of people who think this is the end of the story. 
I need to live as pure as I can so that God will have regard for me. And then when the end of the story goes like this, at some point God's going to deliver those people out and destroy everything else. And if that's the end of the story, I just want to make sure I'm in that first part. And that view gets really narrow. That view gets very legalistic. That view gets very isolated. And you know the hardest part? It is so hard to break out of that once you're in it. In fact, once you get wrapped up in it, Jesus says like the Pharisees, you teach it to others. You make other people as blind as you are and you lead them both and you lead both of us into a ditch. And for the disciples, as we'll see next week, we get to that great text where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter's going to get the right answer, but then he's going to have the wrong answer because he's thinking about Samson. He's thinking about a figure for whom this power of God is upon them that will deliver them from the enemies. Because for the end of that story, it's this, that God will build us up, bless us, conquest, and the others will fall away. It's same chapter, different verse to the Pharisees. And this is why, um, brothers and sisters, the language of new creation is so important to me. And I, I am so committed to this. And some of, I, I hope I'm not a heretic here, but, but I am really committed to this. I think for many of us who have been shaped to think the end of the story somehow is some kind of... It is not surprising that we live lives of isolation and narrowness, and fear, and legalism. Or some kind of perspective in the world that sees us and them, and we can't wait for the day that God gets them. And so there are a few things that I'll die over, and this is one of those. Matthew and the scripture is convinced that that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is this, that the resurrection will break in, that life will overcome death, grace will overcome sin. Goodness will overcome evil. Light will overcome dark. And a people will be filled with that spirit and be empowered to live that kind of new creation life until someday the one who is already over all things will reappear and the, there will be a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Well, evil and death and darkness will be no more, yes, but where all things will be made new and there will be neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All of our boundaries will be eliminated in the light of the Lamb who rules all things. Now back to the Canaanite woman. So Jesus is trying to help. Well, he's kind of helping the Pharisees, but he's mainly about to give up on them. And he's trying to help the disciples see this. And all of a sudden, here comes this Canaanite woman who is bugging them and using language like Lord. And the disciples say, send her away. She's not one of us. And she won't go away. And when she comes and kneels before the Lord, he says the strangest thing. I've come for the children of Israel. You, you don't give the food to the dogs. You give it to the children. Again, this is one of those problematic texts where it just seems so strange for Jesus to use that language to describe her in a way that seems to make her outside of the boundary of God's grace and mercy. And she says the most profound thing. Yeah, that's true. 
but even the dogs get to eat from the crumbs that fall off the master's table. And Jesus in Matthew responds to her and says, oh my word, like he said to the centurion, I wish there was this faith in Israel. Here is faith. Here is somebody who from the outside already understands where this story is going. One of my favorite quotes from this week comes from N.T. Wright where he says about this text, he says, the disciples and perhaps Jesus himself are not yet ready for Calvary. This foreign woman is already insisting upon Easter. The problem is not so much that she's outside the boundaries of grace, but she's, she's fast forwarded to the end. She's ruining the story. She already sees that where this story is going is in the abundance of God's mercy, the abundance of God's grace that makes all things new and includes her in. And when she pronounces that to Jesus, he's, he can't help but say, oh, you get it. These guys are worthless, but you get it. You get it. Oh, what faith, what understanding, what insight into what God is doing, insight into where this story is going. Your daughter is healed. We don't get to look at the next story. The lectionary is going to skip us to the next chapter and to the question of who do you say that I am. But the next story, and part of the reason the lectionary skips it, the next story in the scripture is the feeding of the 4,000. Hang with me here. So Diane, uh, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, preached on the feeding of the 5,000 that appears just a chapter or so in front of the feeding of the 4,000. And I think part of the reason the lectionary decides to skip it and move on to the next story is because sometimes, if you've read the stories before, you kind of go, when you read the feeding of the 5,000, it's like, wow, whoo, that's awesome, five loaves, two fish turns into this big meal. 5,000 plus women and children, they're all fed. And then you get like a chapter or so later and you read the feeding of the 4,000 you go, well, there were five in the first story. And can we not come up with a new miracle at this point, Matthew? Like, it's a little different. There's seven loaves, not fish, you know, all that kind of stuff. Or two, not. But Matthew hints at it. Mark even makes it clearer. That it seems that what happens is in the feeding of the 5,000, you have this Jewish crowd. And what the feeding of the 5,000 is rehearsing is, is when God brings the people out of Egypt and brings them into the wilderness to try to form them. There's no food there. And he gives them manna and quail. And so the feeding of the 5,000 seems to be a recapitulation of that story that God's people, the, the people of Israel, as they move into this new phase of God's story, he's going to take care of them. He, he will feed them. But after this, this woman, and by the way, she seems to have connection um, to actually the Elijah story where the widow also from Sidon is cared for by Elijah. This woman comes now all of a sudden the sense is that all these outsiders begin to realize, oh, wait a minute, we can get in on this? And all of the crowds, both Jews and Gentiles, begin to bring all of their sick. And, and for days, Jesus spends days healing and blessing all these folks who used to be outsiders, but now have seemed to find a way into his life. And so now he's got this multitude. And it's interesting, Matthew says, he tells the disciples, if I send them home, and most of them then seem to have come from a far distance. If I send them home, they'll die on their way back home in those far off places from which they came. 
So you give them something to eat, and they say, listen, you've put us on an allowance, and there's no way we can pay for lunch. Well, what do you have? And it's interesting, they have seven loaves. Anytime we see the number seven, something in our heart should go bing, bing, bing. The number of completion. And, and so the text seems to say, you don't think you have enough, but it's enough. And as Jesus begins to feed this multitude from all over the place with this amazing feast, there are seven basketfuls left over saying there will be plenty in this new creation kingdom that Christ is bringing. Are you with me this morning? So the disciples haven't figured it out yet, and the Pharisees certainly haven't figured it out. But this woman seems to understand the prophetic work that was at work in Elijah and in Isaiah and in Ezekiel is at work in Christ, and it is a hope for a whole world made new that includes her too. And so it's not just the scraps that come from the table, but it's actually the feast of the 4,000 that becomes that which nourishes and changes the nations. So if you're listening well uh, this morning, this text should trouble us. For we are a people who should absolutely know we've read ahead. As nice as it is for her to be an Easter egg for us, but we know where this story goes. It goes to Easter, and it goes to a new creation, and it goes to a God who wants to make all things new. But in this moment, this is a hard word for us. Um, I don't know if you know this. We're in a political year, not an election year. I have 80 days left or so to keep my job. Um, and I, I promise in these next 80 days not to tell you who to vote for, and I promise that we'll pray for all of us, that God would give us wisdom and guidance. His purposes would be fulfilled. But I do notice this, and, and I think it was there before, but even in a time of pandemic, it doesn't matter kind of what party we're from or there is a tendency for us in this moment to be shaped by fears that make us as a people more and more isolationist. There's something that's not fully wrong with that. I, I have an obligation to take care of my kids, for us to take care of our family. But we're a people who know that the story is so much bigger than that. The story is not about surviving the wilderness. The story is not about pulling in the boundaries and the stakes and making sure that our people are taken care of. We are a people, and this is what I'm trying to say this morning, in this time and in this place, I would hope that the people of God would constantly be that voice in our culture that says, yes, we need to take care of our neighbor, but our neighbor is not just there. Our neighbor is there. And we would be that moral voice in the culture that says, it is always a danger when you think the story ends in isolation and self-centeredness. For that is not where the story ends. And so do not allow our fears to keep us and our imagination there. I'm excited for NNU to start this year, for school to start, university to start. In part because Sophie's going and we'll be empty nesters. Um, 
No, we're sad. We're sad. We're really sad, Soph. Um, sad, sad, sad. No, but I, as, I prepare, as I think about classes for this fall, I think of, I've been thinking about what is it that a Christian university is intended to do? And especially in this moment where we are thinking deeply about the physical safety of, of students. Sometimes Christian universities can think that their goal is actually also, and hear me rightly here, the spiritual safety of students. That we're there actually to be a place of isolation. And we're there to be a place that, that actually gives them the skills then to go and, and be little nice, a little bit nicer versions of what the world is already pursuing. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is to bring and shape and mold with a missional attitude that says, the end of the story is the redemption of the whole creation. So now how do I use the gifts that God has given me and equip myself at the best I can to go and use those gifts purposely in the world? I've said this to you, I am convinced that in this moment God has placed us here to reach this valley. I love the opportunity to be new creation in the midst of this valley, partnering with our brothers and sisters in Christ to extend the love of God and the mission of God in this valley. But I know because it happens in my own heart, but it also happens sometimes in your mouth. When we get to that conversation, it's always, that's great, Pastor, but we have so many needs like right here. And I want to say, you're right, we do. And God knows that. But we cannot simply allow our imaginations to be fixated on the needs that we have right here. Not a single amen. That was so disappointing. Just kidding. Dave Fraley is working on a project with Southeast Asia. It's crazy. Cambodia, partnering with some other brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe with First Church and others, to participate in the mission of God in a far-off place. And right now, I think we have mission right here, Dave, that we can do. But we are a people whose imaginations are not simply limited by our own resource and limited by a story that thinks if we could just get this redeemed, everything would be okay. We are people shaped by the imagination of a new creation, a God who can take the little that we have and feed not just our people with it, but feed the world with it. And so my desire in my own life and leadership is to be person who hears the voice of a Canaanite woman who says, yes, but eat, don't forget, we get included. Think bigger than just where you are. And my hope and dream would be to be surrounded by a people who just drive me crazy because they keep saying, pastor, don't forget, it's not just us but it's a mission that is far beyond who we are that God has called us into. We know where the story ends and let's not miss out on where it's going. And the Lord can say, man, 
What great faith. What great faith. Whatever you wish, I will do. God, help us today. Bless us. Thank you for this challenging, difficult text, the Canaanite woman who jumps in the middle of the story and pushes it already to the end. I pray that we would be that kind of people, that kind of imagination, that kind of faith, that kind of optimism of grace, that kind of prisoner of hope. In this moment, we pray again, blessing upon this day and this church, and we pray your blessing upon the university, but we pray that that blessing would not be so much for self and self-preservation as it would be for the empowerment to mission. I pray for students that this season would be a season that shapes them and forms them for mission, that you would use us in this moment to shape and form us for mission, that you would empower us to be a people who know where the story is going. And like this Syrophoenician, like the Canaanite woman, we would plead with you that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in us this moment as it is in heaven. And so bless us today. Make us a people of your mission, we pray, for we pray in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us? Let's sing.